real pleasure for us to welcome uh, Kim Motley here, a friend of mine from Kabul. Uh, Kim began her career as a public defender in Milwaukee, but in 2008 she decided on an adventure, which was supposed to be a short-term pros prospect, and to go to Afghanistan as part of a State Department program to train defense lawyers. Like many people who go to Afghanistan, a brief sojourn became a long-term project, and she's been there ever since, in addition to her activities in other countries around the world. She's now a global litigator, defending individuals and doing her pro bono work in various parts of the, of the uh, globe, and the majority of her work is still in Afghanistan. Uniquely, I think, she is trying to develop a method and a philosophy for international practice within national legal systems, seeking to promote greater justice and fairness in the terms of, of any country's legal system, and that's been a vital part of her effort in Afghanistan and, and vitally important work, as, as you'll hear. As an individual, she's made a tremendous impact in Afghanistan and has helped trans, uh, transform an uh, imperfect, shall we say, legal system, which is still very imperfect, but which struggles to produce justice every day. Um, in the State Department, we have something called the Secretary of State's Woman of Courage Award, which is given to women around the world, nominated by embassies who have, in many cases, put their lives on the line to improve uh, their countrymen and their countries. And as uh, my predecessor, Ryan Crocker, uh, said one time when we were honoring Afghan women of courage, of which there are many, he said, any woman in a public role in Afghanistan is a woman of courage. And that's certainly the case for Kim Motley as well. Um, we're going to show a trailer for, of a documentary film about Kim called Motley's Law, which is showing tonight at the DC Film Festival, and we'll sh which we'll show again on Wednesday evening. So uh, let's have that. Do the Afghan laws not mean anything? Or you just do whatever? You can't just make up laws. We have to recognize Afghanistan will not be a perfect place. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm just pushing my way through because I'm tired of fucking waiting. So the court is relying on the forged signature and the illegal documents for their decision? Is that what he's saying? Well, every system is corrupt. But yeah, there's certain levels. This is at extreme. Really, asshole, you have to honk? Check yes. I'm not gonna talk right now because I wanna listen to my music, please. Excuse my charisma, with a swagger down pat, call my shit Patricia. I came here for the money, and I'm not ashamed to admit that, and it just became something else. So misunderstood, but what's the world without enigma? Two bitches at the same time, synchronized swimmers. Got the girl twisted because she open when you twist her. Never met the bitch, but I fuck her like I missed her. Well, nothing's worth it. I have to die anywhere when you have kids. Where are the babies? Babies are in La La Land's Say cheese. And with the U.S. troop pullout almost complete, government officials fear that the worst is yet to come. I can't let this stuff affect me because I'm going to keep doing this. Let's go do our superhero thing. So who would you be? Uh, Spider-Man. Not the new one, the oh. Tobey Maguire. I think I would want to be Wonder Woman. So, ladies and gentlemen, Kim Motley. Hello. I want to talk about a few of my cases. Sahar was from a remote village, and she was sold by her, her brother. And when she went to go live with her husband and in-laws, they wanted to prostitute her. Because she refused, they tortured her. They beat her. They burned her body. They tied her up in the basement for months and starved her. At one point, she managed to escape from her husband's house 
but to a neighbor's house. But instead of protecting her, the neighbor dragged her back to her husband's house, and she was tortured even worse. Eventually, her uncle found Sahar, and he rescued her from this house. She was so weak that she couldn't walk, and she couldn't eat on her own for months. She was 12. In 2008, I went to Afghanistan for a US Department of State justice-funded program. And my purpose in going there was to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys. It was the first time I ever left the US, and I was very interested in learning about this new environment. Within that first year, I went around the country, and I saw many people that were locked up in prisons throughout the country. And I also talked to many businesses that were operating in Afghanistan. And within these conversations, I found how many of the laws that were meant to use to protect both these people and businesses were being largely ignored, while corrupt, illegal, punitive measures were used repeatedly time and time again. And so this put me on a quest for justness. And what justness means to me is using the laws for their intended purpose, which is to protect. The role of laws is to protect. And I knew that once I started representing clients, that as a litigator, I needed to look and use laws in a very different way. And so what I began doing is I began studying the laws and the systems, and most importantly, the people. And then these studies took me to other countries where I did the same thing of setting laws, people, and customs. And I found that the lack of justness was not just an Afghanistan problem, but it's a global problem. And while I initially began my business with only representing international businesses in Afghanistan, as well as foreigners who were locked up in Afghanistan, I found that the need for justness was so great that I also decided to start representing clients like Sahar too. And then I became a global investor in human rights. Now, with my practice, I have a private business, and I'm the first, and I believe still only, foreigner that's litigating in Afghanistan's courts. And what I do is I fight the system very simply. My method is, is I use the laws, often unused laws, and I work the system from the inside out. In representing my clients, it's my goal and my aim to put the laws back where they belong, which is, which is in the hands of its citizens. And that's, in its raw sense, how I fight for justice. Now let's get back to Sahar. Now, once Sahar's case was first found out, there was a lot of media frenzy. However, once the cameras went away, the in-laws were quietly released. And so I was contacted to try to represent Sahar. When I first met her, as you can imagine, she was a very weak, vulnerable little girl who didn't really want to talk about her issues. And so after we started talking to one another, she decided to allow for me to represent her. And this was significant because this was the first time in Afghanistan where a victim was being represented by an attorney, a law that's been on the books for years and years but had never been used until Sahar's case. In addition to this, we decided to take this case to the Supreme Court as a victim. Again, a law that has never been used on the books we use for Sahar's case. In taking the case to the Supreme Court, we went after the in-laws for having physically violated Sahar. But we also went after her brother for illegally selling her when she was nine years old. In Afghanistan, according to the civil code, a woman is not to be forced to be married until she's at least 16 years old. According to the Holy Quran, chapter 4, verse 19, it says a woman is never to be inherited. So all this underage marriage and forcing marriages of kids of people underage, and even those that are adults, is completely illegal. And we use that to try to prosecute her brother for illegally selling her. In addition to this, we also decided to sue for civil compensatory damages. Again, using a law that's been on the books in Afghanistan for years and years that had never been used until Sahar's case. And so we took this case to the Supreme Court, and we went together. And there we were, in front of nine Supreme Court justices, me as an American lawyer, and Sahar, a young girl who, when I first met her, couldn't, would not speak above a whisper. She found her voice, and she told them that she wanted justness. And it was beautiful to watch. 
The court unanimously agreed that the in-laws and her brother should be found criminally responsible for having physically abused her and also selling her, and they ordered for their immediate arrest. In addition to that, the court agreed with us that her marriage was illegal in the first place, and they also agreed that she had the right to sue for civil compensatory damages. All first legal precedent-setting issues were set because of Sahar. A 2012 study in Oxfam found that there's at least 87% of Afghan women are victims of domestic violence. Last year in March, the UN issued a report that said that over one in three women on earth right now is or has been a victim of domestic violence. Sahar has shown us that we can directly challenge existing bad practices by using the law and we need to understand that by protecting Sahar, we're protecting ourselves. Now, as an international litigator, I've, I have the pleasure of defending a vast array of clients on almost every continent except for Antarctica. So if anyone knows a scientist in Antarctica that needs a lawyer, please let me know, because I would love to check that box. But the reason why I choose to represent people around the globe is because I have a very strong belief for justice and that I believe that people deserve the right to be legally protected. I found that in representing CEOs of Fortune 500 companies to ambassadors to little girls like Sahar that the best way to protect my clients is by using the law, and I have been able to do so with, with much success. And the reason really is because I use the system and I fight the laws from the inside out. In my travels, I found that there are three major problems why justness is difficult to achieve, especially in places like Afghanistan. The first problem is, is that I find that across the globe, people are very uneducated as to what their rights are. The second issue is that even when good laws exist, it's often superseded by illegal cultural practices, like in the instance when Sahar was sold off by her brother illegally. The third issue with achieving justice in places like Afghanistan is that even with good laws on the books, I find that there's a lack of people and also lawyers that are willing to fight for these laws. I believe that it's my job to address th these three issues with achieving justness. I also believe that it's my job to not just work in representing my clients, but it's also my job to give power to my clients so that they can then take what the laws and represent themselves, because the vast majority of people in this world just do not have access to lawyers. In Bolivia, a couple years back, there was a husband and wife who owned an orphanage. In the orphanage, there were allegations that the husband may have sexually assaulted some of the girls that were in the orphanage. So the prosecutors hired five separate experts to go in and investigate and talk to the kids. In these investigations, they found that several of the girls that were under the age of six had reported that, yes, they had, in fact, been sexually assaulted. They found a 17-year-old girl who was pregnant by the, um, the husband. And so the prosecutors decided to charged the guy, the husband, and he was convicted for 15 years for sexually assaulting two of the girls. One girl in particular was part of the indigenous population in Bolivia, and she testified in open court what he had done to her. For whatever reason, three years after this incident, another prosecutor decided to charge one of the doctors, Dr. Alvarez, in this case, for giving false ideology, basically saying she gave a falsified medical certificate. And their main reason for going after Dr. Alvarez is that the prosecutors had found a doctor that was willing to testify that if you're a child that's six years of age or under, and if you're sexually assaulted, you'll either die or be permanently medically injured. Now, I represent Dr. Alvarez, and this was a huge case. And the reason why it's huge is because not only was she, was she facing eight years in prison simply for doing her job, and according to the Bolivian Constitution, 
people have a right to their scientific opinion, which is what we were able to use in court. If we lost this case, think about the bigger consequences. And that's what I try to do with a lot of my cases, think about the bigger picture. If she was found guilty of giving a false certificate, and if in fact the prosecutor's new theory of a child that's under the age of six can't be raped unless she's dead, what will this do to the country? Number one, any kid that's under the age of six from this day going forward can never really allege that they were raped because they would be dead. And so that case, that charge would not stick. The second issue is that if Dr. Alvarez is found guilty from a legal perspective, this case could then be used to release any other current pedophiles that are in prison that raped a kid under the age of six because medically it can't happen according to the state's theory. And thirdly, and perhaps one of the most important reasons why I decided to take, take this case is that as professionals, it discourages professionals from getting involved in such cases because they may face prison time for simply doing their jobs. Now, when we finally were able to track down some of the other experts that testified, we had to track them down, we found that the prosecutors had threatened them that if they got involved with our case, that they were going to hurt them but they were able to and willing to testify on behalf of us. And we were able to actually get this case dismissed, thankfully. And we need to understand that this is another example that by protecting Dr. Alvarez, we're protecting ourselves. Now, religious persecution creates a toxic environment for violent extremism to take hold. When people are denied their right to practice religion, they, become, they can become more alienated and resentful against their government, which can ultimately weaken governments and can invoke draconian laws to further cause instability. Back in the 80s, the Taliban were attacking people within the Sikh religion in Afghanistan. Baljik, Sikh, Baljik Singh was one of my clients. His family fled Afghanistan, and eventually they ended up in the UK. In the UK, he sought asylum. He was denied asylum. And one day when he went to go sign in while his case was pending, they decided to put him on an unchartered plane back to Afghanistan. Now, according to the UN Convention Against Torture, to which Afghanistan and the UK are both signatories to, it expressly forbids states to transport people to any country when there's reason to believe that they will be tortured. When Baljik landed in Afghanistan from the plane, the Afghan police came on and they immediately arrested him. He was taken to jail, and in jail he was forced to convert to Islam, which they televised. He was tortured. He was forbidden to practice his own religion and he literally was enslaved in the prison with no charges. Now, Baljik was actually detained with another one of my clients, which is how I heard about his case. And when I immediately decided to take his case, I started questioning, why, are you, why is he locked up? And they had no answers. And so after almost two years of being illegally detained, they allowed for Baljik to be released from prison but the caveat was he could only be released to my custody. And so within this release, the Afghan government also admitted that they did, in fact, illegally imprison him. Once he was released, it, that wasn't good enough because there were two governments at fault. The Afghan government was at fault for illegally imprisoning him, and the UK government was also at fault for illegally exporting him back to Afghanistan because there was a reason to believe that he would be tortured. Sometimes what I do, it's my job to challenge the states to uphold not only their domestic laws, but also their international conventions to which they're signatories to. So I talked to the UK government about Baljik, and they agreed that they had, in fact, illegally transported him to Afghanistan. And in a rare sort of instance, the UK government agreed to take him back to the UK. And now Baljik is a citizen of the UK, doing very well and in school and working.
This is another instance where justness prevailed. Now with my job, there's a certain amount of risk that I take both personally as well as professionally. But I do recognize that borders today don't mean as much as they used to back in the day. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a theory years and, go, years and years ago that of six degrees of separation. Have you guys heard that? So basically this theory is that we're all separated by six people. Well, according to scientists at Facebook and the University of Milan, we're now 3.57 degrees of separation from each other. So what this means is, is that our huge global dysfunctional family is connected more now than we have ever been. And we need to understand that the problems that, they are in, that are in Afghanistan are not just Afghan problems, but they're global problems that we all need to deal with and all need to learn how to attack. I found that what started in Afghanistan can translate to other countries because my clients have helped me learn that rule of law means nothing if there's no role of law. And it's my job to bring confidence back to rule of law and to teach systems to respect their own laws through justness. Now, according to the National Studies on Missing Children, it estimates that there's over 800,000 children that are missing. UNICEF has indicated that there's at least 300,000 children that are involved in armed conflict today. In the UK, Natalie had three boys, ages two months, three, and five years old. She was married, but her husband and her were having marital problems, and so they went to court and they had a custody arrangement with the boys. When Natalie went one day to go pick up her boys, neither her husband nor her boys were there. So she went to the police. Weeks later, she talked to her estranged husband and realized that he had taken them somewhere out of the UK. When she went to the British police, they could only help her to an extent because there was reason to believe that the kids had been taken to Afghanistan or Pakistan, but no one was sure and the husband wasn't telling anybody where the kids were. Because of the fact the kids were taken out of the country, the police didn't have any authority to get involved. So for a year and a half, Natalie went back and forth with the UK police, and she also hired British lawyers to try to help her with the situation, having no idea where her kids were. So she finally reached out to me to try to figure out, A, where are her boys, and B, to bring her boys back to her. Now, I try to, I do things within the legal bounds of the law, but sometimes I have to be a little bit more creative with how I practice law. Afghanistan and Pakistan, neither one of them is a signatory to the International Convention on Child Abduction. So what that means is, is that they, Afghanistan and Pakistan have zero legal obligation to get involved in such cases. And so I thought that the best way to even start this case was for me to get legal guardianship in the UK courts of the, of the boys, which they gave me. Once I got legal guardianship of the boys in the UK, I then took that document to Afghanistan and I got legal guardianship of the boys in the Afghan courts. I then took that document to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Afghanistan and got them to legalize that document. Once I received all these documents, now I'm making up a system as I go along, I then went to the Afghan police and showed them this document and said, this gives you the legal authority to help me in finding these boys. In addition to that, I was also working with the British police within Afghanistan. And we had no idea where those kids were. So after several months of combing the country and really digging to find where these children were, which we believe they were in Afghanistan, we finally found them in a northern part of the country. And I had the pleasure of taking the boys back to their mom last year, and justice prevailed. And now where before precedent is very scarce on international child abduction cases, this case can be used as an example on how to deal with such issues. And I've been able to use this case and use these steps in helping other mothers get their kids back that have been um, internationally abducted. 
Now these cases are not about simple individual problems that are confined to Afghanistan and Bolivia, but they represent larger global issues. Child abuse, domestic violence, and religious persecution. And these cases, while anomalies, represent the possibilities of what you can do when you use the laws for their intended purpose. They show that even in a country like Afghanistan, one of the most corrupt countries in the world, that you can successfully use the laws and in a way to protect yourself. The law is our instrument. It's our voice. And I think it's time that we all update, fine tune, and reshuffle our playlist on how we use and look at the laws. As a business owner, what I try to do is I try to encourage other people and businesses to also become global investors in human rights. 30% of my business, at least, is based on pro bono work, and I'm completely self-funded. And because of that, I try to talk to businesses and individuals about also becoming global investors in human rights. We're in a unique time where globalization and privatization is at a level that's never been before. And what that means is that we're reaching across borders all along the way. And as, and as a means of this, we need to understand that laws in other countries or issues in other countries aren't just issues in those countries, but they are our issues. One way that I believe businesses can help to become global investors in human rights is by developing practices that are consistent with international human rights standards. I think we should work towards civilizing the economy as people and as businesses and understand that the economy is meant to serve the good of the people and it's not the other way around. By working together collectively in the public, private, private, and people sector, we can fight against government deficiencies that undermine rule of law, and we can bring confidence back to rule of law. By doing this, we not only become global investors in human rights, but we help people like Natalie, Sahar, Baljeek, and ourselves to improve global markets. And by doing this, we work towards fighting and creating a, an environment where justness is not the exception, but that it becomes the rule. Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> thank you. Well, Kim, thank you very much for that uh, really interesting and indiv individualistic View, a different view of the importance of rule of law and how to how to work for it, which is something that is an important part of our endeavor in Afghanistan, but also in development work around the world. Um, I'm curious, uh, just to, to start off, you you went to Afghanistan as a as a contractor, mm -hmm. of which there are thousands, uh, or were in those days at least thousands, uh, in the country. You went there as a teacher, and at some point, you made a decision to change from being a contractor to an actor within the process that you had come to, uh, come to work on. That was a very dangerous and unique thing to do, to actually become part of the play rather than somebody who was supporting it on the, on the outside. I'm curious, what was, the, what was the tipping point in your own mind to make that decision to go from being uh, a third party to an immediate party in, in these kinds of uh, legal cases? Okay. Good question. Well, um, when I originally came to Afghanistan, I had, and I still do practice in the US, but at that point in time, I had been a practicing attorney for six years. And I, my specialty has always been litigation. And in 2008 to 2009, I remember visiting various uh, prisons. And in particular, the largest prison in Afghanistan is Policharki. And I went to Policharki, just sort of going on a tour. And I remember meeting a British and a South African inmates who later became my clients. And I remember walking by their cell, and they were just sort of really trying to get, you know, I was part of a group, trying to get my attention, like someone's attention within the group. 
and they're sort of talking over each other, trying to explain their stories, and it just wasn't understandable. And frankly, a lot of people on the tour just weren't interested. And so I remember um, they had these papers that explained their cases, and one of them, Anthony, actually you know, looked at me through the cell, and they just were both like, you know, please help us. No one is helping us. Mm. And so that scene always has stuck in my brain because after learning about their cases, I realized that they did not have a lawyer, that their embassies were only there to do a limited amount. And it's important to note that when a foreigner is locked up overseas, it's not the embassy's obligation or responsibility to get them out of prison. It's their responsibility to help with the security and health and safety of them as best as an embassy can. And so they had very limited contact with their embassies and they seemed very desperate. And so they both became one of some of my first clients. So that's sort of what got me started in representing people and in quitting the contractor job and, you know, opening my own practice. Well, it's a, a, a really unique mm -hmm. step to take. So as somebody whose institutions benefited from that, I'm very, I'm very glad that you did. Um, part of the, part of the dilemma of working within a another culture and another legal system is how the different actors within that system will react to each other, react to you, react to notions or different views of justice. And I remember um, one time I went to a, a seminar with a, a USAID seminar with somebody like you teaching. Uh, female um, prosecutors, judges, attorneys, law students, and it was really interesting to hear them. It was, it was all women. I was the only uh, male in the room. And it was really interesting to hear them talk about their views about how the legal system would work and what format they were embarked in. So we had everybody there from 25-year-old law students to 50-year-old women who'd been in the legal system for some time. And I was really struck in the course of the discussion, we started talking about violence against women. And it set off a heated debate among the women um, uh, with one 55-year-old, one more or less, prosecutor at some point saying, I don't know if I would prosecute a husband for beating his wife because maybe she deserved it. What do you think the role of women will be, is and will be, in the Afghan legal system? There are, there are lots of women who are already engaged. Very few foreigners know about this, mm. by the way, because they don't see it. There are law classes in in the Kabul University that are just for women. Okay. So they will be coming into the system, they are coming into the system now. So how do you, your, from your experience, how do you think that will evolve? Well, I think the uh, sort of, if you look at the news, it's as though Afghanistan is imploding on, on itself. But that's not what I see. I don't think that's what you've seen. There are people, Afghan women, like you said, that are fighting in the system as best as they can. Um, and I think that they'll continue to fight because that is what needs to happen. Um, I think that there needs to be more understanding of how, you know, it's one thing to know the laws, but it's another thing to understand how to use the laws. And I think that's where it needs to go for, for women to understand how to use those laws. And so it's, it's Afghanistan is, is a strange country to me in that you often see the younger generation of women having a very different idea than the older generation of women. And so there's that clash. And so I think that um, since I've been there for eight years, I've seen more women judges. I've seen more women politicians in the medical, in, in every sector, I've seen more women being represented, which is, which is ideally a good thing. Now, just because you get more women doesn't mean you get the right women. Mm -hmm. But it's moving towards that. You see more women in media and things like that. So I think um, it's a country that definitely is always, at least during my lifetime, will be a work in progress. I think um, we need to recognize that Afghan women deserve the support that we can give them. Um, but also, we need to put um, sort of uh, expectations on them 
You know, it's not just about coming to a conference and, you know, telling every problem you have. We need to, we need to talk to them about what are your solutions? What are, you, what are you going to do to fix these problems? And I think the conversations are sort of starting to go that way, which is good. Um, so I, I'm very optimistic about uh, the progression of women in Afghanistan. And before we go to the audience for questions, just quickly, are you finding uh, in your continuing engagement over the years that the, the Afghan legal system as such is becoming more accessible mm -hmm. to people who need, who need legal assistance? I do feel like it's becoming more accessible. Um, I do. When I first went to Afghanistan, I think there were 200 lawyers that were registered with the Bar Association. Now I believe there's almost 2,000 um, that's registered with the Bar Association, which is sort of a lot within a seven-year time span. Um, I do feel like women are more aware of their rights. Um, there is now a, uh, a unit that's set up in the Attorney General's office where women can actually go to and re report if they're victims of violence. Now, it's not perfect, but it is there, and that's a start. So I do feel like um, that, and also there's elimination of violence against women law, um, which is another positive. Um, but another thing that needs to be recognized is that all the things that, most of the things that are in the elimination of violence against women law can be found in other Afghan laws. So even if that's taken away, those laws still exist. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, but I do feel like, within the legal arena that women are a little bit more aware of their rights and are pushing the rock a little bit higher up the hill. It's a steep hill, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll go to the audience for questions if we have a microphone. Um, if you would state your name and affiliation if you have one. We'll take this gentleman here in the front. Herb Rose, E.P. Down and Associates. Um, I'm wondering about two issues uh, that I would think that you would, as an American practicing law in another country, uh, would find somewhat difficult uh, to deal with. One is the nuances in uh, law of any country. Um, both your understanding those nuances and then your ability to uh, plead your case, did you have good translators and were they familiar with the law and uh, was that part of that? Uh, the second issue is I think Afghanistan has a reputation for having um, a lot of corruption and I wondered how much that entered into uh, the cases that you were pleading. Good question. Well, I'll, I'll address your second question first. Um, the best way to fight corruption is just not be corrupt. So I run an ethical practice. I don't engage in corruption. I don't pay bribes. And that's part of the reason why I've been able to also last as long as I have in Afghanistan. And I think I have built up credibility within the legal system. So what I do to try to fight against corruption, aside from not paying bribes, is when I have a meeting with a judge, for instance, and if they allude to a bribe, I'll put that in writing. I'm hyper, hyper uh, sensitive about that. So I put everything in writing. And I find that that's a great way to fight corruption because a lot of people want to do things under the table. But if you're very transparent, it scares people. And people tend to act a little bit better than they would if you don't put things in writing. Now, with regards to how do I navigate the legal system, um, I hire my translators. And one thing that's very interesting is that in, in Dari, there's a lot of legal words that can't be translated. So my translators, they need to know Arabic and how to translate that. So every time that I go to court, I put everything in writing. My defense statement, I put every, my legal arguments completely in writing. And I put everything in English and Dari. In addition to that, there's a lot of laws in Afghanistan that are translated to English, which is obviously my primary language. But even the official translations, I have my translators to retranslate them because the law and every word is extremely important. So I want to make sure that I'm very accurate with citing the law and the way that I do that. There's not a document that I submit to the court that hasn't gone through at least two people before it gets in front of a judge. 
And so, and I do that not just in Afghanistan, but also other countries. And what I have found is, like I love reading about different laws. The culture is the issue, no matter what country you're in. Like for instance, I could do 20 adultery cases in, a, in Kabul in front of the same judge, and all 20 will have their own little nuances. So for me, litigation is an art. And it's a craft. And so it's about understanding how to craft your argument to the person you are talking to on that day that will affect them to make the decision that is in favor of your client, if that makes sense. And so it's a real case-by-case -case basis type of thing. And also, I, I, like I said, I talk to people. And I just uh, try to litigate from the inside out, too. I can attest to the difficulty of translation because English and Dari are both nuanced languages. Mm -hmm. And we sometimes, when we were negotiating agreements with the Afghans, we sometimes spent weeks arguing over the translation of a specific word or phrase. So mm -hmm. congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you. I'm Rohla Osmani, a scholar with John Hopkins Eyes. Um, most of the cases you discussed were sort of through formal uh, justice system uh, and also mostly in capital, like Kabul and uh, other cities, maybe. But uh, there, there, there was a report by USAID that more than 80% of the cases are dealt through informal justice system in Afghanistan and mostly in provinces where majority of population left. So uh, I'm wondering if you have gone through those types of cases, especially uh, the women cases. Mm -hmm. And in that report, uh, it was mentioned that uh, mostly people were satisfied with informal justice system uh, versus formal justice system. We're uh, satisfied? Y yes. Okay. So, um, uh, so how, how do you see that uh, in terms of women and child uh, mm -hmm. cases? Thank you. OK, good question. Well, uh, short answer, I have done cases through the Jirga system, through the informal justice system. I've participated in Jirgas as a participant, um, not as a party. Um, I've, been, I've been in a Jirga as the head of a Jirga and have given decisions. And so as a lawyer, in every legal system, there's an informal and formal system, including the US. We call it arbitration mediation. And so in my opinion, you can't be an effective lawyer unless you do understand both systems, and that includes in Afghanistan. And so uh, definitely I have worked within the informal system. I do see some positives within the informal system because often the decisions are very swift. It's accessible to more people. Um, and also with the informal system, it's more of a compromise. Like with the formal system, there's a winner, there's a loser. With the informal system, everyone wins something, everyone loses something if you do it right. Now, with regards to the informal system in dealing with women, I don't necessarily believe that's the best way that issues where women are being accused of anything should be handled. And the reason being is because in the informal system, it's hardly ever any women that can participate in the jirga. In the informal system, they often don't even allow the women that are being accused of something to even come in and to give their voice as to why they're being accused of that. And often with women, the decisions may be very illegal. Like for instance, in a jirga that I presided over, the first jirga, the, um, my clients, well, a, a, a man owed his neighbor $2,500. So the first jirga determined the best way to satisfy that debt would be if the father gave his six-year-old daughter to satisfy that debt to the neighbor and to his 19-year-old son to marry. So we had a second jirga that I presided over in which we changed that. The debt was satisfied, the engagement was terminated, and the girl was able to be at home with her family. But if you don't have that oversight, you're going to get that a lot of times, especially on property matters. They're going to trade these girls to satisfy the debts instead of dealing with the situation in a legal way. So I'm not a person that's against the informal system at all. I see some definite benefits to it. But I think you have to be very careful. And I think that pretty much anything criminal should not be taken through the informal system because you run the risk of having an illegal sentence that's imposed. Ma'am, wait for the microphones coming. 
Uh, I'm Tamana from Women for Afghan Women. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the work you're doing in Afghanistan. And also, I heard the news that uh, you're representing um, Sahar Gullah's case, and she was in one of our shelters mm -hmm. in supported and run by Women for Afghan Women. So really, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, um, you studied law here. So um, how, um, you were be, um, how you were able to practice law in Afghanistan? Because in Afghanistan, we know it's an um, Islamic country, so it's a Sharia law. Mm -hmm. So did you have to go through uh, like legal education? or? Mm -hmm. Did you have to take some Sharia law courses or something? Or right. you just were able to, to practice the law? My first question. And the second question is about um, Farhonda's case. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that uh, you were representing Farhonda Malikzada's um, family mm -hmm. in the court. Um, so I just wanted some updates, if you have any uh, updates on that case. Thank okay. you. Good questions. I like women for Afghan women. I'm actually the lawyer for women for Afghan women. So. Um, with regards to um, the first question, which was how was I able to represent people in Afghanistan? Um, in Advocates Law Article 6, it's in Afghanistan's Advocates Law Article 6, it specifically states that a foreigner may represent other foreigners in Afghanistan if they're duly licensed in their jurisdiction. So recognizing that, and recognize that when I went to court, it was going to be noticed. What I did was, is I went to the head of the Supreme Court, the Minister of, the, uh, of Justice, the President of the Bar Association, and the head of the Attorney General's office at the time. And I asked for all their permissions to allow for me to practice law in Afghanistan. And they gave it. In addition to that, because I wanted to be super duper transparent and there wasn't a system, I gave to the Afghan Independent Bar Association a copy of my um, practicing license in the U.S. I got that legalized through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I got it notarized through the U.S. Embassy, and I gave that to the Afghan Independent Bar Association. For the first couple of years that I represented people, I also gave them letters of who specifically I was representing so that the bar was aware of that. Then, after years of practicing in Afghanistan, there's another law, in advocate's law, that says a person may choose whomever they want to represent them. So that law has allowed for me to represent Afghans. And so that's, and that's how I started representing my Afghan clients. And so um, with regards to the Furkunda case, um, I represented the uh, Furkunda's family in first court. And in first court, we received 22 convictions um, there were 10 police officers that were convicted for failing to render assistance, which I think was a very positive thing because in a country like Afghanistan, which is a very rural country, um, the likelihood of a police officer being there to help rescue a woman that's being attacked is very slim. And even if a, a police officer is there, it's even slimmer than that. So I think it was really important that we got convictions for failing to render assistance of 10 police officers because it showed the community that you have a legal obligation to protect the women. And if you don't do that, there could be criminal consequences. In addition to that, and again, I'm just talking about first court, received 12 convictions for those that directly attacked Furkunda. And, and for those of you that aren't aware of Furkunda, sorry, I should have said this in the beginning. Furkunda was a young Afghan woman who was uh, basically, she went to a, a mosque with her friend. Her friend was sold an amulet by a storekeeper. He sold her this amulet for the purposes of trying to make her feel better. It didn't work, so Furkunda went with her friend <coughs> to the market, to where the mosque was, to confront the storekeeper, to try to get the money back for her friend, for, for this amulet that didn't work. When Furkunda confronted the storekeeper, instead of you know, giving the money back, he immediately falsely accused her of burning the Holy Quran. As a result of that, um, there were crowds were gathered around her, and she was beaten to death, she was burned, um, and, and she was killed. So that's the case we're talking about. Um, again, in first court, we got 12 convictions for people that were directly involved in her case. And four of those convictions were death sentences, including of the storekeeper. So from a legal perspective, I think that was a great outcome. Now in second court, 
they uh, changed the convictions, as I understand it. I, didn't, I did not represent the family in second court, but as I understand it, there were only 10 people convicted for Fercunda's case. The death sentences had been converted to 10 years in prison. Now, objectively speaking, and, and, and this case was the first, we went to first court, it was the first case that had ever been televised in Afghanistan from beginning to end in so many TV stations, which I think was a great thing. When I was walking around Afghanistan and going different places, I was getting stopped all over the place because people were asking, had questions about the case, which I think was great. You know, they were, they were really invested into the legal system, which was, it was a lot of people's first look into the Afghan legal system, which I think was, was great. A lot of people were, were disappointed with, with what happened in second court. But to be honest, I acknowledge the fact that what happened to Fercunda absolutely was horrible. It should not have happened. But I think it's really doing a disservice to Afghanistan to look at what happened in second court as a failure because there were still 10 convictions. When I first came to Afghanistan, you know, one of the first videos I saw were of, of women being stoned to death and no one cared, no one did anything, no one was convicted. So this was a real change where there was some responsibility maybe placed on people for having tortured her. In Supreme Court, that decision was confirmed where the same 10 convictions held. Now from a legal standpoint in Afghanistan, if the defendant appeals a sentence, the sentence is not to increase. It's either to stay the same or go down. So the Supreme Court was legally barred from increasing the sentence, which a lot of people wanted. There was a lot of mark, but it's just, it, that's not how the legal system works. So I think that um, what happened with Furcunda, yes, it could have been better decisions, but I think that the fact that there were 10 convictions should not be looked at as a failure and should be looked at to a certain extent as a legal success because that would not have happened prior to, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, and the publicity and the principles that were established in dealing with that case are very important mm -hmm. for the future also. Right. Which is great. So there you go. You're taking it back through. Okay, well, thank you. We're at the, end of our, at the end of our hour. Thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking Kim for joining us today. Thank you.